0: Acts chapter 16, and we'll start at verse 22. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a commandment, threw them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house, and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Amen. So a pretty amazing account here of Paul and Silas as they were uh, persecuted for the sake of the gospel and uh, they end up in prison here in the city of Philippi. And the thing that I wanted to focus on today is verse 31 or really 30 and 31. The jailer obviously knew that they were they were men of God. He heard them singing and praying, and surely that was convicting hearing the things that were coming out of their mouth. Here they were suffering in prison, yet they were praising God and loving God and worshiping God. And he's apparently convicted over his sin and over the judgment. He knows that God is with these guys, right? Because when this happens... He cries out in desperate, he's ready to kill himself because he's afraid that uh, something worse is going to happen to him when the, when the Roman leaders find out that he let all the prisoners go. And uh, Paul says, stop. And he says, sirs, cries out, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so I want to speak to you on the subject today of saving faith. And there's something wonderful about these verses a desperate man's cry and God's straightforward answer, right? So clear, so so present, just right there. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Uh, some of you guys have been down to Don Johnson's family camp uh, down in Arkansas. And this verse is actually kind of placarded on the wall behind the, in huge words, says believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I like that. You know, it's just kind of, there is a signpost to everyone that comes in and sits and listens at the meetings. Um, to come to Christ, to believe upon Christ. Uh, but before we consider what saving faith is, we must consider what we need to be saved from, right? To which the Bible is clear, we need to be saved from sin. It is sin that Jesus came to save us from. His name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What is sin? Sin is anything and everything that is opposed to God, right? It is lawlessness. It is rebellion. It's a revolver in God's good face. It's not loving Him, cherishing Him. It's not loving our fellow men the way we should. And the Bible says that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And this, this, this word fallen short, this is actually a term, a Greek term for an archery, right? So you've, you've got your bow and arrow and you're, you're aimed at the bullseye and the, the goal is to hit the bullseye. But what happens is you're a bad shot and it, it misses the mark or it falls short, right? Yeah. And that's the way the Bible describes us. You know, not just that we've done a few bad things or that we've made a, a few mistakes in our life, but really we're good people, but, you know, we just kind of make a mistake every now and then. But rather, the Bible's view of us is that our whole life has missed the mark. God intended us to be one way. He intended us to be walking with Him, loving Him, enjoying Him, walking in holiness. In our whole life, we've done the exact opposite. We've, the arrow went over here. We missed the mark. And so when the Bible talks about sin, it's not just that we've made a few mistakes, it's that our whole life has been sin. We've never done anything but sin. And in fact, even the best things that we think that we've done were tainted with sin, right? There, there was, there was mixed, mixed motives. There was pride in there. There was selfishness. There was wanting to be seen by men for even the good deeds that we've done. John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols, So an idol, you know, something that you put in the place of God, that you live for, that you worship, whether it be cars, whether it be money, whether it be sex, whether it be acceptance or the praise of man, Uh, it's like if you're lost, the only thing you've ever done is put things in the place that God should have had in your life. You've worshipped something that you should not have worshipped. You've lived for something that you should not have lived for. And it's an idol and it's sin. But the problem is worse than that, though, isn't it? And the problem is this, and that, that is this, that God is holy, right? God never sins. So God is a sinless being. He's a holy being. He's repulsed by sin. He hates sin. I mean, what sort of person would you be if you started to hear stories of, of child molestation? You thought, oh, ho-hum, that's no big deal. You'd say, well, that person doesn't really love children, right? Right? And it's the same way with God. Because he loves what is good, he must hate that which is evil. It's good that God hates evil. You want a God that rules the universe, that hates evil, right? That There's no darkness at all. He's not going to lie to you. He's not half good and half bad. Uh, and that's the way it is. God hates evil. And as a judge, the Bible says that God is the judge of all the earth, that he's going to judge the world one day, he must punish sin. If God did not punish sin, he would cease to be God. He would not be God. And what is the punishment of sin? Well, the Bible says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. So that's how serious sin is to God. Sin brings God's judgment. It brings God's wrath. And the punishment is death, physical death, spiritual death. It is so bad that it's punishable by death in hell forever. Hence our need to be saved, right? We are slaves of sin, and we're guilty and on our way to hell because of our sins. That's how bad sin is in the sight of God. That's how much God hates sin. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, for what he's done for us, right? Uh, turn to Second Corinthians, a couple chapters over from the book of Acts, chapter 5. Chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, in verse 21. He, that is God, God the Father, made him, that is Jesus Christ, his son, who knew no sin, he never sinned, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Don't miss this right now, okay? Because this is the heart of the gospel, right? This is the center of of the message of salvation. God made Christ, His precious only Son, enter into this world as a man, fully man and fully God, to take upon Himself all of the guilt of the sins of His people, to take every vile thing you've ever thought, every vile thing you've ever done, to take all the bad check marks that were written against you by which God was going to judge you for and place them on his son in our stead. And he died and, and suffered and died in our place on the cross. That's the gospel. Three days later, he rose again from the dead, proving that God had accepted the payment for sins. And he did all this so that we might become right with God, right? Or so that we might be saved, It's as if we were condemned, right? We're condemned and awaiting execution. The firing squad, everyone's got their gun pointed at you. You're trembling with fear. You're going to die, and you deserve to die. But at the last minute, someone steps in, and that someone was innocent. That someone was perfect. He steps in and takes the punishment. He says, no, I'll I'll take the punishment instead, that you can go free. And that's what it is that Christ has done for us. It is by the cross that we can be saved. And that brings us today uh, to our text. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so I want to talk about this thing of believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And I want to point out several things about this. And the first one is this. And that is that Christ is the object of saving faith. Your baptism cannot save you. Person getting dunked in the water comes out of a wet center. It's never done anything to save a person's soul. Your church attendance cannot save you. Your good deeds, a lot of people think, my good deeds, if I just do enough, then I can try and outweigh my bad deeds and then I can go to heaven. That can never save you. Your good resolutions cannot save you. The Bible emphatically declares that Christ alone can save you. By trusting in him, you receive the benefits, benefits of all his work on the cross. You know, some people think that it's a general kind of faith that saves you. They say, oh, oh yes, you know, I believe in God. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. I'm going to heaven. By which they, all they mean by that is they know that God is real. You know, it has nothing to do with a commitment of their life or actually believing upon Christ. The problem is this. So do demons, right? They know God is real. They believe God is real. They, they believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, They know there's a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit. They believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. They know that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay uh, for the sins of his people. But they're not saved, right? They're not going to heaven. Millions of people falsely think they're going to heaven when the truth is they have zero love for God and zero commitment of life to Christ. And such faith cannot save you. That is not saving faith To just know facts about God or know facts about the gospel or know that God exists. Such faith cannot save you. So what faith does save you? True faith can save you. Trust, commitment, believing upon, committing your soul to Jesus Christ. Uh, John D. shared an illustration a few months ago that I really liked and that of a bank. You know, what do you do with your money? You've got a lot of money. Well, do you want to keep it in cash in your house? Well, no, a thief could get in there and, and take several thousands of dollars from you or your house could burn down and all the, uh, all the bills will burn up with it. So what do you do? You take it to the bank because you're trusting that the bank is going to keep that money safe, right? That people are, even if a thief did break in, they've somehow got back up or the federal government will bail them out and your money's safe. You can get it back. So you put your money in the bank. You're trusting the bank with your money to hold it, to, sa- to keep it secure and safe. And that's what it is to believe upon Christ, right? You're putting your soul into the bank of Jesus. You're saying, I'm entrusting my soul to you, Lord Jesus, that you can save me forever, that you can keep my soul safe from the wrath of God when the day of judgment comes. Another illustration um, that I found most helpful uh, from Brother Charles here is that of the, the missionaries that went out to this jungle tribe, and uh, some of you have heard this, some of you haven't. Um, but they, in their language, they did not have a word for faith or for believe or for trust. And these people used to sleep you know, 20 feet up off the ground, high up in the, in the, the jungle trees, because if they slept on the ground at night, they would become a midnight snack for a tiger. And so they didn't want that, and so they had to sleep up in the trees. And when the missionaries tried to share the gospel, then they, didn't have, they did not have a word for faith. So what are you going to do? How are you going to translate this? Well, they translated it, uh, the word believe, as hang your hammock upon, right? If you're going to hang your hammock upon a tree 20 feet in the air and sleep there all night, you want to trust that tree, right? You're banking that these two trees are good trees. They're not bad ones. The branch isn't going to break. It's going to hold you up all night, and you're not going to plummet to your death while you're sound asleep in the middle of the night. So they translated it, hang your hammock upon. You know, God so loved the world that whoever hangs his hammock upon Christ will not perish, but have eternal life. You're, you're banking, you're putting your whole life, trusting in Him only to save you from your sins. You're hanging your hammock upon Him. Next, true faith is apart from works. And you can just read Romans 4 if you don't believe this. To be saved has nothing to do with you. Do you realize that? It has nothing to do with you. It does not matter how good you've been, Right, But it also does not matter how bad you've been. Why? Because it has nothing to do with you. It's not as though you do all you can. You try to be as good as you can, and then Christ kind of covers the rest of the way. He'll kind of help you out and cover the rest, what you couldn't do. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. It is 100% the work of Christ, and we come empty-handed, or you don't come at all. And I like this uh, hymn, rock of ages cleft for me i just want to quote a couple um, stanzas from it here it says not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy laws demands he's saying not all my striving not all my efforts could ever fulfill what your law wants i can never be good enough could my zeal no rest but no could my tears forever flow you could cry forever about your sins you could never pay for one of them You could be the most zealous. You could be the most religious. It could never pay for one sin. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. It's saying it's all 100% you, Lord. You've got to do the work. You've got to save me. I cannot save myself. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. He's saying nothing in my hands. I don't bring anything to the table, Lord. All I have is my sins. I have nothing that can recommend me to you to save me. It's not based upon our works. Do not insult Jesus Christ by seeking to add to what he has already done. Right? He said it is finished on the cross. He paid for sins in full. And it is insulting to come to God and say, yeah, But that really wasn't enough. That really is not good enough. You sending your own son from heaven, coming down to earth, dying on a cross, bearing the wrath of God. Yeah, thanks for that gift, but I've got something I can do for you here that can do it. Do you see how insulting that is to God? It is insulting. There's nothing left to do except to believe it and to receive it. Romans 4.16, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Grace is the outstretched hand of God. He did the work. He's offering the gift to you, right? That's the gift, the grace. Offering the gift of his son. Faith is simply taking hold of it, believing that it's for you. And he set it up this way, right? He set it up this way that he gets 100% of the glory. He did all. We did nothing. Therefore, we boast in him and not ourselves. You can turn to this if you want. You don't have to. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, what you did, so that no one may boast. No one can boast. What did you do? You did nothing. You were just the recipient of a free gift. And that's what salvation is. Consider the wonder of how God has set this up. Some, you can hear words and believe them and be saved forever. I mean, you can be saved forever today by hearing the gospel and believing it, just believing what it is that Christ has done. Anyone can be saved, rich, poor, smart, dumb, high IQ, low IQ, children. People on death row can be saved why? Because it has nothing to do with your works. You can, you can come to Christ as a sinner, realize you've ruined your whole life, you've done nothing but sin, come to Christ and be saved forever. You can be on your deathbed, albeit it might be rare, but it, I'm sure it's happened many times that God has saved people on their deathbeds. Maybe, maybe they never heard the gospel all their life, and some Christian comes to them in their last moments, they hear about Christ, and they're saved before they can do anything, and they're going to heaven forever a free gift. I've been reading uh, Pilgrim of the Heavenly Way again, uh, that, auto, that autobiography of Dan Smith, and he tells the story of that um, communist soldier. They were in the city of Kunming, uh, and the, the communists were taking over, and uh, as he's preaching the last service there in this big church in Kunming, uh, these communist soldiers come in the back of the church, and he sees them all there, and he said he just kept preaching as hard as he could. You know, he didn't, he didn't back down at all what he was saying, and at the end, he, he called for anyone that wanted to be saved to come forward. And sure enough, one of the communist soldiers comes forward and believes upon Christ. And a few minutes later, the, other, the leader of the communist group drags him outside and shoots him right in the middle of the street in front of the church. So his Christian life lasted about one minute or two minutes. But he, was, he heard the gospel, he believed in the Lord Jesus, and he was saved. Amazing. So the obvious question then is this, have you obeyed this text, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved? If not, what is holding you back from believing upon Christ? Perhaps you think that you're too sinful to be saved. You may say you don't know the things that I've done, the secret things that no one else knows about or that very few people know about, the things that I've thought to which I would say that does not disqualify you, but makes you a candidate for salvation, right? Jesus came to save bad people, not good ones. If you think you're good, you can never be saved. You will never go to heaven. If you think deep down in your heart you're a good person and that God should accept you just the way you are, you cannot and you will not be saved. Jesus Christ came to save sinners he came to save people with mountains of sins which is everybody there's just some people that don't realize it you say how can this be possible i mean one one person one man paying for the sins of a multitude of people from all over and i say yes it is possible because that one man was worth more than all the rest right Christ was of infinite value. He was the son of God. He was worth more than all the worlds combined. It's not even worth comparing to him. And he died on the cross to pay for those sins, for that multitude. Perhaps you think that you need to feel your sins more before you come. You say, I don't feel, if I felt more bad about my sins, maybe then I would come and believe. To which I would say, how foolish. Think of a person who's sick and they realize that they're, Their sickness is progressing. It's getting worse and worse. And they know, they've heard, the end of this illness is death. I'm going to end up dying. But they think, well, I I just don't feel bad enough to go to the doctor. I'm just going to hold off and and not, not go to the doctor right now. I'm going to wait until I get closer to death. And then I'll go to the doctor. That's how foolish it is to think of it that way. If you know that you're a sinner, you know that you're not right with God, you know that you're rebelling against God, you know that you're sick with sin and that you're going to die from it, You should flee to Christ at once, right? You should believe now. Believe now and be saved. Maybe you think someday I will believe, to which the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. God now commands all men everywhere to repent, right? The Bible never says tomorrow is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may never come for you. This may be your last day. Tomorrow your heart may be harder than it was today and the next day harder and the next day harder until eventually you don't even care at all and you're 100% careless about your soul and you've totally forgotten about the things you heard at church. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. It always addresses us in the now, not go home and think about it, not go home and, and consider it, You can be saved in your very seat this moment, right now, if you believe upon Christ. You can be saved. Perhaps you say, I cannot be saved. My faith is too weak. To which I would say, Ah, but you're still looking at yourself, right? It is not great faith that saves, but a great Savior. Weak faith and a strong bridge will get you safely across the chasm. Doesn't matter if you're scared, doesn't matter if you're trembling. You could be the weakest of faith, but if you get on the bridge and get across, if it's a strong bridge, it's okay, right? You're going to get to the other side. And Jesus Christ is the strong bridge. The blood of Christ is the strong bridge which can get you safely across. Consider the reasonableness of trusting the person of Christ. Um, I thought of this illustration. Uh, My lawnmower has been broken, uh, so I've been having to borrow it from Brother Andrew here, his, several times now. Um, and here's the question. You know, do you think that I sit around before I give Andrew a call when it's time for me to borrow his lawnmower again? Like, well, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. I mean, I just don't know if he would be willing to really do that, I mean, to let me borrow his lawnmower again. Now you'd say, no, that's foolish. I trust him, right? He's done it before for me. He's a good friend. You know, I'm trusting that he's going to lend it to me again. But think about this. Even Andrew sends, right, he may get tired of it. He may, he may get bugged by me. You know, he's like, get your own lawnmower. Why don't you go, why don't you go buy your own lawnmower? Uh, you know, or his lawnmower may break down. He can't lend it to me anymore. He's, he's got, in, it's insufficient. You know, he can't, he can't provide it for me anymore. But think of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ never fails. Jesus Christ never sins. He's saved multitudes of people that have come to him and has never turned away one of them. That's a pretty good track record, isn't it? I mean, for anyone that's ever truly sought Christ, he has never turned them away. Not one soul that has come to him in faith has said no. Not once. He's never lacked the resources, right? He has an infinite supply. He's full of grace. He's full of mercy. He's willing to save sinners. Him who comes to him, he says, I will never cast out. It is insulting to him not to trust him. What sort of person do you think he is? What sort of person has he proved himself to be in the Gospels? Is he worthy of your trust? The Bible would say yes. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And I want to close uh, reading an account here. I've actually read it to you all before, but I don't care. I would read it every month if I could to you. Um, It's this this little tract. And if you haven't read it, you should get it and Read it again after I read it to you today. Um, but this is the account of Charles Spurgeon and how he came to believe upon Christ. And the reason I like it so much is because it's so glorious, it's so clear um, that salvation is by faith. So I'm going to read, read this short little tract here. I had been about five years in the most fearful distress of mind as a lad. If any human being felt more of the terror of God's law, I can indeed pity and sympathize with him. So he was deeply troubled for about five years. He was convicted that he was lost and that he was under God's judgment. I thought that the sun was blotted out of my sky, that I had so sinned against God that there was no hope for me. I prayed. The Lord knows how I prayed, but I never had a glimpse of an answer that I knew of. So he, he was troubled. He was praying about this. Being saved. He wanted to be saved, but he didn't know how. I searched the Word of God. The promises were more alarming than the threatenings. I read of the privileges of the people of God, but with the fullest persuasion that they were not for me. The secret of my distress was this I did not know the Gospel. I was in a Christian land, I had Christian parents, but I did not fully understand the freeness and the simplicity of the Gospel. I attended all the places of worship in town where I lived, but I honestly believed that I did not hear the gospel fully preached. I don't blame the men, however. One man preached about the divine sovereignty. I could hear him with pleasure, but what was that to a poor sinner who wished to know what he should do to be saved? There was another admirable man who always preached about the law, but what, use, what was the use of plowing up that which needed to be sown? Another was a great practical preacher, I heard him, but it was very much like a commanding officer teaching the maneuvers of war to a set of men without feet. What could I do? All his exhortations were lost on me. I knew it was said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But I did not know what it was to believe in Christ. I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm on a Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that ministers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid, as you would say. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was this Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a gleam of hope for me in this text. He began thus My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. Now that does not take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man not be worth a thousand a year to look may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not go to college to learn to look. You, anyone, can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. It says, look unto me. I, he said in broad Essex, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, I must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. It runs. Look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend. I am sitting at the, right, at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me. Look to me. When he had gotten about that length and managed to spin out ten times or so, he was the, at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Then he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made on my own personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, And you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death, if you do not obey my text, but if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted as only a primitive can, Young man, look to Jesus Christ, and I did look. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun. I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ, and of the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me before, trust Christ, and you shall be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you. For what you've done, Lord, we thank you for coming down from heaven, for living a perfect life, Lord, for dying on the cross for our sins and for rising again. Lord, we would wish, Lord, we want everyone to believe this message and to be saved, to be transformed, Lord, by the power of the gospel, to believe upon Christ and to be given eternal life. Lord, we pray you'd open blind eyes. We pray, cause people to see the reality, Lord, of what you've done. Lord, cause us to see your great worth, your infinite sacrifice. Lord, your ability to save us from all of our sins. Lord, I pray you'd encourage your people. Help us today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.